Here we go. If you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 18, where we're at in a Luke series at the moment. Luke chapter 18, it's going to be from verse 9 in just a mo. If you remember last week, Luke, um, Bob was in this chapter, the early part of Luke chapter 18. And he was talking about persistence in prayer, wasn't he, if you remember. And this week's segment follows the same theme about prayer. But instead of looking at, the, um, it's looking at it from another angle, rather than looking at the mechanics of prayer, as, as the passage and Bob was looking at last week, this is... This time it's more about the the spiritual posture of prayer, about our heart during prayer and in the midst of prayer. So, because, I mean, our hearts are where Jesus reigns, right? His kingdom, the domain of our king, uh, is not a political one, it's not a physical one primarily, it's one of hearts, it's a reign over and in and our hearts. And so, Jesus' kingdom is one that breaks strongholds, heals broken lives, broken hearts, heals the broken because it is the power of God at work in people's hearts. It starts there, doesn't it? Which is very contradictory to man's assumption of, of power and strength and morality and righteousness and so on. It's this upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom, isn't it? It's a topsy-turvy kingdom. It never ceases to defeat man's assumptions or never stops confronting our own ideas of, of how transformation in a person or in society should work as well. See these stories all the way through Scripture, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament about great things having minuscule beginnings, don't we? You know, the mustard seed and so on. You get, in the Old Testament, you've got a young shepherd boy who becomes the greatest of kings. And you get uh, Gideon and his reduced squad, very reduced squad, facing this, you know, they're vastly outnumbered by this terrifyingly huge army, and yet they're victorious. And you get this room full of jars filling up with oil, from one tiny jar that's running out. Time and time again, it's just examples of what God's kingdom is like and how it works. His great power outworks through the weak and the ordinary. Time and time and time again. Even the Apostle Paul, he appeared to the nations as he travelled as this middle-aged man with eyesight problems, didn't he? And he says in, the, in his letter to the Corinthians, I was just, I'm stuttering with my words, I wasn't impressive at all. And yet he impacted the known world for Christ, whether that was in person or even merely by letter. God's kingdom on display, isn't it? God's kingdom is one that takes what we prize as strong and mighty and turns that on on its head. So we see the proud tumbling or humbling, praise God. But we also see the last, the least and the lost being lifted up, being raised up. Jesus' topsy-turvy kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. Or in other words, Jesus uses that phrase, he uses another phrase that says the same kind of thing. He says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And Jesus uses that phrase again in today's passage. We saw, we came across that, that phrase uh, in, uh, back in August when we were working through Luke chapter 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is using the same phrase again here in chapter 18, his upside-down kingdom on display. So that is what Jesus is focusing his attention on today when he's still remaining on the subject of prayer, how we approach God, our spiritual posture, our heart's posture in prayer, and therefore we can then learn what that reveals about us and what we need to do about it as well. So we're going to read from Luke 18, from verse 9 through to verse 
14 just for now. There'll be another bit later on. Uh, Luke 18 verse 9 says, He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this is a parable. It's not necessarily a true story. It's a, it's a parable. It's a, one of Jesus' stories that he tells. He, he, he creates wonderful works of fiction that, are, that have an impactful message for those that want to hear. Um, but it would certainly be based on the kinds of people who did pray in the temple. And it would be based on the kinds of prayers that were prayed. In fact, it's based on the kinds of prayers that are still prayed today. But there's an immediate punch to it. that, that it, This is what we're going to learn today, that how we pray reveals a lot about us. The content of our prayers does reveal a lot about the content of our hearts. It's like an MOT check. But let's just look at these two men, first of all. We've got the Pharisee, and we've got the tax collector. These two men who are very contrasting in the tone of their prayers. We'll look at that in a minute. That demonstrates their different heart conditions. We'll, we'll come across that shortly. But even right from the outset, just their standing in society helps paint a picture about Jesus' topsy-turvy kingdom, doesn't it? So you've got the Pharisee. Who were the Pharisees? They were these religious leaders in the community. They were often they were, uh, middle-class businessmen or synagogue leaders and so on. They had clout in society, in the community. They had respect. Uh, but generally speaking, they are also very self-righteous and smug at the same time. Um, it says in verse 9, Jesus talks about people who trusted in themselves and had contempt for others, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Uh, a few of them were okay. You come across the likes of Nicodemus in the Gospels and so on. Some of them are okay, but the majority were not. In general, Matthew uh, chapter 23, Jesus describes them as they do not practice what they preach. So we've got this Pharisee who is well-respected, but he is self-righteous. He trusts in, trusting in himself for righteousness, for his right standing before God. But in contrast, we've got the tax collector. Ooh, clues in the name, tax collector. Benjamin Franklin once said, was it in this world nothing is certain except death and taxes. Uh, who likes paying their taxes? Come on, where's the, where's the hands? We don't like it. We, I hope, we trust, that we, 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 we understand the value of it. And so we happily play our part in society by paying our taxes. But it's not necessarily something we, 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 we'd like. Um, some people actively hate the tax men. I've met some of those individuals. They really hate HMRC and so on. This guy is a tax man. Ooh. These tax men, though, these were Jews who were working for the Romans. The baddies. Ooh. The double bad. Ooh. So while... you know. The, while you're begrudgingly handing over your taxes to the tax man, you're handing your taxes over to someone that you, as a Jew, would consider as a turncoat. He's working for the enemy. 
Makes it doubly difficult, doubly bad, doesn't it? <gasps> Who is this bloke? Who do you think he is? So there was a stigma of these men as turncoats as well. So while you've got the Pharisee, he's a well-respected man of society. Here is a man who is vehemently hated by everyone because of who he is as well as what he does. But this one gets it, doesn't he? He gets it. He's in a remarkably humble place. So in contrast to the Pharisee, who is well-respected but self-righteous, we've got this tax collector who has zero respect from others in the community but he's completely aware of his unrighteousness. So it's fascinating what Jesus is doing here. He's painting a picture, very overt, very explicit, of his topsy-turvy kingdom. These two men, they represent one who is esteemed in society and another who represents those who are reviled in society, and yet it's, it's not the one who looks wholesome and right, in inverted commas, who is acceptable in God's eyes. It's the other one. It's all about the heart. Mankind, even today, still has this assumption of who is right before God and who isn't. Just half the time, because of how they, how they present and they follow certain rules that be decided by society, that makes you right before God and that doesn't. But it so often just misses the point. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Appearances, appearances are deceptive, aren't they? judging a book by its cover and so on. We can make assumptions about someone who looks physically healthy, but actually isn't, in terms of just general health, you know, well-being and so on. When I was in the ambulance service, we, used to, um, we had different ways over the years that developed about how we dealt with heart attacks. And someone can look perfectly fine, yet be having a really serious heart attack. He's got a bit of a niggle of pain. My wife nagged me and she said she's going to phone 999. I told her not to, but here you are. All that, getting the up with his wife for funny 999, we do an ECG, he's having a heart attack. They can look fine. But what we ended up doing, we used to um, blue light, we'd phone ahead to Ashford Hospital, and we'd blue light them to a cardiac suite around the back of uh, Ashford Hospital, and we wheeled them straight in on our trolley. The staff would be there waiting because we phoned ahead, and they would be able to, in front of us, the patients chatting away to us, look, could be looking fine, and yet on the screen, you see a scan of their body with this stent being put into the blocked artery that's causing the heart attack, and they're expanding it, and you suddenly watch the blood flow go through to the deadening mus heart muscle, and it comes alive again. There was a man in front of you, he's having a chat, going, I don't know what I'm doing here. It's all, it's all, you're, just, you're just making ag, aren't you? But no, you're seriously ill, because I can see on that screen the state of your heart. He might look fine, and he might think he's fine. His wife was right. <laughs> X-ray screen, on, you can see in front of them as they're fixing his heart that was broken. Someone might look all right, but they're not necessarily. When it comes to our spiritual heart nature, God has x-ray vision, doesn't he? He looks on the heart. And so, 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. I love that. Let me just read that again. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Sorry, it's 2 Chronicles 16, 9 if you're scribbling notes. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Not doing the right things, whose heart is blameless towards him. So for starters, let us not be a people who not only judge others by how they appear, but also make assumptions about ourselves. We can easily be blind to our own faults, can't we? But we can get 
clues from our prayer life, for example. This is coming back to how we pray reveals a lot about our hearts. For example, this Pharisee, he's praying a prayer of thanksgiving, isn't he? Thank you, Lord. But his prayer of thanksgiving itself is topsy-turvy. Instead of thanking God for who he, God, is and what he, God, does, he's not thanking him for that. He's actually being grateful for who he, the Pharisee, is and what he does. Verse 11, let's read it. There's uh, the Pharisee standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. And then lists all, all the bad ones. Or even like this tax collector. Thank, you, thank goodness I'm not like him. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. It's like a job interview where he's, hum, he's humble bragging and he's trying to big himself up in order to get the promotion, isn't he? He's bargaining with God as well. I do this and I do that. Not only am I, yeah, I'm not like other men, but I do this and I do this for you. Verse 12, you know, I, I, I fast and I tithe. Man, they're not bargaining chips. Fasting is not a bargaining chip. That's not how it works. Fasting is about demonstrating your hunger for God to be far bigger and more glorified than everything else in you and in your life. It's not a means to convince him. It's a means to seek him. Very different. But neither is tithing, you know, giving, giving of your income. That is not a down payment or more favour. If, if I give more of this, I'll get more in return. God's economy is not based on our giving. That's not quite how he works. Giving more in order to get more, that is, that's prosperity gospel, that's health and wealth stuff, that is anti-gospel, that is anti-biblical, and again, just demonstrates a heart like the Pharisees. You're doing it with false motives, aren't you? Selfish motives. Now, giving does unlock spiritual impact. If your worship hasn't hit your wallet, you need to ask yourself why. It's about trust of our Lord who gives us everything in the first place. Giving sacrificially from what you've been given, anyway, when that's done as an act of worship, it acknowledges his ownership of you and his provision for you. I'm trusting you. And I want to play a part sacrificially in what you're doing on this planet. That's what it means to give, doesn't it? If you're giving in order to get more, you've missed the point entirely, and there's a test of the heart, isn't it? And so tithing, with the right heart, that's an act of genuine worship. It's not a down payment or more favour. And yet this guy's going, well, I'll give to you. So I must be really moral and upright. His prayer has revealed his true heart condition, isn't it? But in contrast, the tax collector, it says he's standing far off. He's got a real sense of himself and his self-esteem, so he's, he's hiding in the corner. But he is freely and openly, because he's seen to be doing it, he's freely and openly, can't even lift his eyes to heaven. His, his physical posture is demonstrating his heart posture straight away. And then he's beating his breast and crying out to God for mercy. He knows his absolute desperate need for God's kindness and rescue, and he's not afraid to show it. He's unhindered in his acceptance of uh, that, that he's, he is a lost man without God's rescue. So again, his prayer reveals his heart, doesn't it? So here's a couple of questions. I like my questions, don't I? Here we go. What do my prayers say about me? What do your prayers say about you? Good to ask, isn't it? Two Ds, just to help us. Direction and desire. The direction of our prayers. What I mean by that is, where is the focus of my prayers? Is it more about me than about other people? 
Do I pray about me too much? Or do I pray about others? Is it the other way around? Do I pray about others too much and not actually have a conversation with God about me? There can be an imbalance sometimes. We can pray. It's good to pray for others. We're meant to pray for others. It's great. Always pray for others. There's nothing wrong with that. But we can pray so much for others. We're never having an honest conversation with our Father in heaven about us. Does that make sense? Yeah, we can miss the point. You go, oh, I pray so much. And, and your dad in heaven's going, I want to chat with you about you. There's something I want to have a word about. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we can be hiding in our prayers for other people. But also the other way around, we can always be praying about me, 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 me. And that says a lot about our, the focus of our hearts in the first place. And we're not considering other people and so on. What is the direction of my prayers? Is it imbalanced? Where does my major focus lie? Good question to ask. And the other one, desire. As in, what is it you're asking for? Are you seeking creature comforts and an easier life? Or are you seeking growth and maturity? Pinches the heart, doesn't it? I know I've mentioned this before, but do you look at Paul's prayers for the church throughout his letters? I've added them up. Over 90% of them are not about people's circumstances changing. They're about having the knowledge of and growth in their relationship with their Father in Heaven. That's what he's bothered about. He doesn't pray about a change in their situation, but 90% of his prayers are about a change of the heart within the situation. And that doesn't look like a lot of our prayers sometimes, does it? He doesn't pray, you're not having a great time, in fact you're having a terrible time, so I'm praying it'll be over very soon. That's the kind of thing I find myself praying, either for me or for others. Lord, will you just bring an end to this? Give them a break, Lord. It's what we pray, don't we? Paul's prayer is, may you be filled with the full knowledge of God's glory while you go through this circumstance. Hugely different. It's a very different priority, isn't it? And it challenges me. Challenges me about what I pray for for me. It challenges me about what I pray for for other people. What's God's priority here? The challenge what's the desire of my prayers? Is it about seeking creature, creature comforts and an easier life for me or for others? Or is it about growth and maturity primarily? It's not, there's nothing wrong in asking for nice things. Not what I'm saying. But we need to be careful about our priority and our focus. Is it aligned with God's heart for that individual or for me in whichever situation? So just a couple of questions to ask. The direction of our, of our prayers. Am I praying too much about me or not enough about me? And the desire of our prayers, am I praying for the right things? Good questions to go away and ask yourself. The content of our prayers, however, ultimately is dictated by the content of our hearts, which leads us to Jesus' very next action and commentary um, on the next few verses. We're going to read the next little section about um, the children. Uh, Verse 15 to verse 17 um, says... Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Even infants they were bringing to him. There's two, two things we can learn immediately here about children in that society and what, what we can learn from that today. Um, firstly, in that ancient culture, children, they were considered to be very much seen and not heard. They were on the fringe of society. 
Um, they were considered on the fringe of society until they came of age or they were considered useful. <laughs> That's kind of how, how it operated. Parents loved their kids. Parents loved their kids in that society. But in terms of social standing, they weren't considered to be much until they became adults or pubescent teens and so on. Adolescents. Um, so this, therefore, even, they were bring, they're bringing even, even infants. It's that word even gets me. They weren't just bringing infants along to Jesus. They're bringing even infants to Jesus. This take, so it gives us a greater weight when we see it through an ancient lens that if Jesus had time for these children that weren't considered worthy of consideration, if Jesus even had time for them, he has time for anyone. And therefore, God has time for you regardless of who you are. It's really important to remember that. Remember Bob last week said, if, if, if um, I don't know, if Iris is praying, God's got to wait until she's finished praying before he can listen to Pete or Mary pray. Remember what Bob was saying, God has got time to give 100% attention to a million prayers at once. He's got time for you. And he welcome, regardless of who you are, he wants to chat with you. He wants to hear your heart. He's always got time for you, regardless. But secondly, ancient moralists and spiritual leaders, spiritual teachers at the time, um, they would regularly tout heroes and great statesmen as role models for their students to imitate. They'd never put kids up as role models. They'd be very prestigious, amazing heroes and people like that. But Jesus here, he points to the children. His very own disciples are pushing away. His disciples, they're part of the last of the least and the lost. Half of them with their, their backgrounds, including a tax collector. And even the tax collector is going, uh, no children here, thank you. And Jesus is like, uh, what are you doing? Let them in. And then well, he doesn't just let them in, so they come to him. He then lifts them up and goes, these children are role models for you. You should be like them. He's completely turning the whole role model idea on its head. But they are your role models. And so we as God's people, we need to imitate those of no status. Like the tax collector people who recognize their dependence on him, that my value is not in my social standing regard. It, it means nothing. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, he lists all the reasons why he is a Jew, as a Hebrew man of this tribe, and I was a Pharisee, and I was, I was a Pharisee, I had social standing. He's like, I consider that as, and the word he uses is talking about dog poo on the bottom of your shoe. He says, I consider all of that as nothing. It's about Christ and Christ only. My righteousness is found in him, not in that. We need to be these people, like children, who are de totally dependent on their parents and their guardians. Being like a little child and having a heart posture. True disciples are those who happily adopt the posture of a child. Children are great role models because, because they're dependent and they're vulnerable. This is Jesus' topsy-turvy kingdom again. Children have to trust their parents, their guardians, their adults in general, teachers and so on for provision, for safety, for guidance and so on, don't they? They have to, by nature. So there's, there's a reason why the father in the Bible is called the father. There's a reason why we're called his kids. It's all about trust. It's all about trust and dependence and knowing that he knows better. Parents in the room, you, you, you increasingly discover that it doesn't change as they get older either, does it? They come to you in different ways with the counsel and wisdom and, and so on, and they still have to trust you that you know better sometimes. 
Um, Amy, uh, she had her driving test. Where are we? It's, no, it's still November, aren't we? Uh, last month in October, Amy had her driving test. And uh, I'm allowed to tell this story, it's fine. But it was the first test in the morning, 10 to 8 in the morning, and she'd woken up at silly o'clock being really ill. She's like, Dan, I can't do this. Dan, I can't do this. I, th- I don't think this is nerves. I don't think this is my anxiety. I think this is an actual illness. It's like, I knew, I knew it wasn't. But babe, just, let's just get, get ready and we'll take it step by step. Dad, Dad, I just need to go back to bed. Can we call in sick? Like, You'll be all right. Come on, let's just take the next step. One foot in front of the other. And it's, Dad, I can't do it. Dad, I just need to go to bed. She did look green, but she does turn green on a regular basis anyway when she feels funny. But it's like, darling, trust me. And... Uh, Let's just jump in the car, let's go for a little drive a little bit early, and maybe just the, the distraction will, will help your nerves settle. So we're driving around, I forgot the, the seafront's full of speed bumps, didn't I? So she's like, huh? Dad, Dad, can I go home, please? So let's take a different turning. And it's like, Dad, I just need to go to bed, I, just, I need to do this another day, it's not going to work. I'm going to fail anyway, I'm just, I can't concentrate. Let's just drive up to the test centre and sit in the car park, crack open the windows, just give it 10 minutes and we'll see how we feel. Oh, Dad. So it's like, all right, I'll take your word for it. So we drive up there. Within about 30 seconds, like, no, I've got to go home. It's like, darling, let's just go and sit in the waiting room and just see how we, see how we get on for just another five minutes. All right, then. So she's taking my word for it and we sit in the waiting room and she's just looking at me going, I just need to go home. So it's like, let's just meet the examiner. Let's just meet him. All right then. And he came out, one of, one of uh, Pete's mates, he was lovely, he came over and he said, Amy Dunn, and she stuck her hand up. And I said, she's not feeling great. And his smile, it was just the best smile, he just went, come on, Amy. And it was just like, I just, I knew we were in safe hands. So off they went. 40 minutes later, she pulls back into the car park. I've been following her frantically and find my iPhone. Where is she now? 40 minutes later, pulls into the car park. And, and if, if, you, if you want to, they'll wait for your instructor or your parent to come over to the car before they give you the news. And I opened the door, and she was still green as anything, face like this. I thought, he's had a great time, hasn't he? <laughs> and, and I said, you're right, darling. She went, not really. I thought, oh, okay, I'll be rebooking another test at lunchtime. And he goes, so well done, Amy, you passed your test. And she went, what? And she started crying. So I told him off for making my daughter cry. But we all had a little giggle, and she passed her test. She was fine. And I was like, does Dad sometimes know a bit better? And she was like, very begrudgingly, so-so. But sometimes there is a place for children and their parents just to, like, as a child, just to go, I've just got to take your word for it that you do know better. That's what we need to do in prayer. Yielding and trusting in prayer is, is, is as important as the asking. Yielding and trusting in prayer is as is, is vital as the asking. Unlike the Pharisee who's like, I'm brilliant and I know best and I'm doing all right. That's not prayer. That's puffed up commentary. He's not actually praying, is he? But like the, so we need to be like the tax collector who's accepting that I'm in dire need of you and I'm trusting you, that you know better. But giving up our immediate preferences, it comes back to the creature comfort stuff again as well, doesn't it? Giving up our immediate preferences and accepting that Dad knows better than me. In the Lord's Prayer, what's that phrase? Your will be done. Jesus says it in the garden. Not my will, but yours. So Jesus says in verse 16 here, he says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Be like a child. To be an active part of his kingdom, we need to receive it in the same way that a child walks through life. Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 18, uh, 
first few verses says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, here he is again, doing it again, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, the topsy-turvy kingdom. If you don't humble yourself like a child, and if you think you're above that, you'll be missing out on all the benefits that a child gets from the best dad in the universe. Simple as that. The most notable treasure of that, ultimately, is God himself. All the stuff he gives us is brilliant, and all the things he does for us is brilliant. He's he's the best bit. Submitting to, like a child, to the best dad in the universe means you get to know the greatest source of comfort and joy and peace and security and leadership and wisdom, guidance, and so on. He welcomes anyone who runs into their father's arms knowing their need for their mercy in Jesus. Always, immediately, 100% attention. So I'm just going to close, just some little reminders from where we've been. How we pray reveals a lot about our hearts. And you just need to ask, what's the direction of my prayers? Is it too much about me? Is it not enough about me? It's a good question to ask. What's the desire of my prayers? Am I, pre- am I asking for creature comforts or heart change? <laughs> Tricky one. It's good to ask. And we need to be like children, trusting that dad knows best. Children are unable to see what a parent can see, right? And so they have to rely on their mum or dad's understanding. So for us, it's not wrestling or fighting with father. Ah, this is wrong, you're doing this wrong. Why aren't you, why aren't you coming through? There's a place to question, that's okay, but it needs to be from a humble heart. But it's, it's less about wrestling with him and more about yielding and listening to him. What's your heart for this? And what do you want to do in me? And what do you want to say to me? Children ask why a lot, don't they? Why? Why? Ad nauseam until it does your head in. Why? It comes to a point where you just go, you, you try and answer, try and give good answers, but by the end of it, you're like, because. <laughs> why? Kids love to know why. It's good. It's a good thing. Inquisitive. But they also need to be content with not everything being fully explained because they're not old enough to fully some things I just can't tell you yet. And so for us, we don't know everything, and yet we often pray very prescriptively. God, will you do this, 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 and that that way, please? And God's like, well, you haven't seen what's around the corner, though. Sometimes we need to not specify, overly specify, how we want God to change a situation or a person. Again, it comes back to the, the desire of our prayers. But also, finally, children, they sometimes fall over, don't they? But their first instinct is to cry out to mum or dad, don't they? For help, for comfort, for kissing it better, rubbing it better and all that. But they always, they always want to show you where they hurt. It was there. And you're looking at the finger thinking, oh, I can't see anything on there. But it's there. They want to show you where they hurt, don't they? But for us, God's people, as his children, when we trip up, what is our first reaction? Is it in prayer? Or is it in hiding? Or is it in shame? Is it in repeated behaviour? Or is it in prayer and we just go, Dad, I've hurt myself. Dad, I've done it again. Dad, I've tripped over. Can you help me? Let's be children where that's our first portal call. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can call you exactly that. Our Father in heaven. 
the best dad in the universe. You've made that possible. God, who is so transcendent and so holy and so other, didn't have to, but out of your great love, you chose to, and you chose us. Lord, we thank you, but still as fickle humans, we can so often forget that or ignore that, not turn to you enough, or not turn to you in the right way. Will you help us to humble our hearts, to truly live up to what it means to be your children, to be so childlike before you, that we discover more of your Father heart in the process. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help in this. Prod at what you need to prod at and soothe what you need to soothe and so on. Will you just show us, each one of us, how we can meet with you more, know you more, be your children more. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mick and um, Pete are going to lead us through.